but when you need support and you need a good strategy in order to succeed, you really want to take time with those decisions. So in a way, taking more time should correlate to the importance of the decision in my mind. Welcome to Pyramid to Circles. Pyramid to Circles. This podcast is for the leaders and for the change makers who have the goal of evolving their company towards more collective intelligence, more empowerment, more self-organization, but asking themselves how to make this happen, where to start, and how to get inspiration from others. Dear listeners, today I would like to speak to those of you who are interested in groups and in facilitation. I would like to propose a metaphor. I think a group or any group when you facilitate is a bit like a lake or like the sea. There is what you see on the surface, which could be quiet or agitated. And very often what we, when we facilitate, we work at a surface level. And there is what you don't see that is going on beneath, beneath the surface, the big currents or the topics that uh, we don't talk about, like the taboo or the fundamentally different worldviews among people that in reality are very active and impact the dynamic and at the end, the outcome of the work we're doing. So today, I would like to dive into this water. I would like us to take our mask, our pumps, and oxygen bottles, and to do a bit of diving in, into the mysterious chemistry that a group of people is, when these people start to have common challenges, common and also diverging interests. How to read a group dynamic and really address it in the most relevant way and work at the level of the real pain points not only on the surface of things, how to do that. So every facilitator, every leader is puzzled by this question, especially when it comes to lead the change or simply to mediate a conflict between parties. So my guest today is an expert of this topic. She's a person very dear to me. She's one of these persons in my life that I can call master because of who she is. And for what I know, she's able to accomplish with people. And this person is very special for being at the same time an inter internationally renowned facilitator, expert in the field of mediation, conflict resolution, and negotiation on one hand. And on the other hand, she's a Zen master. So uh, she's also considered as a pioneer in articulating and applying the insights of an integral life practice based on the work of Ken Wilbur. So... Diane Michelle Hamilton, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you today. So how are you and where are you as we speak? Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I am in Southern Utah. I, uh, Utah is between Colorado and California. It runs, the Rocky Mountains run through Utah and I'm living in the south, Southern part, which is there are a lot of canyons. The Grand Canyon is here and many national parks, lots of red rock. So I'm living in a really beautiful place in the summer where I like to think and, and contemplate. So I'm very happy to be in this conversation with you, Mikhail, and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about. Look, me too. It's a bit amazing for me to have you because just want to say to your audience that we met a few years ago and I took part of one of the big course that you gave called Integral Facilitation. That was, I think, five years ago or so. And it has been a, quite a journey for me. And and then there is so much we could, you know, cover and, and an hour is short. So maybe I wanted to ask you for our audience, just to get a sense of who you are and where you're coming from. What is your story? How did you 
you know, became at the same time a mediator and a Zen priest and master. That's quite of a journey. So maybe just could you tell us about that? I think like all of us, I, I, I have a story about my life. And then there's also the, the reality of my life. And I'm not sure the two overlap, but I'll, I'll do my best. So I was born in the west of Utah, and it was a mountainous uh, region. I was raised with horses. I spent a lot of my time outside. Um, and I think in that riding horses as a young person, it gave me lots of time to think. And it also, at a certain point, if you think about a long day, sitting upright on the back of an animal, of a horse, and moving through the natural world, across earth, up and down mountains, through streams, under trees, wind, rain. I feel like the, that those early experiences really uh, trained, in a certain way, my contemplative life. So I think it was through that that I actually learned to meditate. It was also a way that, that uh, I came to peace with myself. Um, because there, at a certain point, there's just nothing left to think about. And so one becomes very quiet, paying attention to what's happening in the natural world, seeing the weather change, hearing the sounds, paying attention to a bird or a cat that crosses your path. So it, it was a very beautiful and natural discipline. And that's, I think, what led me to, to Zen practice was simply the upright sitting and becoming one with my environment. It was a way of really honoring, if you will, or appreciating this remarkable situation that we have where we're in form, we're born, we will die. We don't know exactly what this is about, but we do know that when we follow certain of our instincts and certain of our intuitions and instincts, that we we can learn how to be one with our world. And that that's always been very important to me. So in terms of the, so that's the, the meditation side. The mediation side, I think it, it's a kind of an interesting story. Um, I had a very uh, robust, dynamic, interesting family. Not, wouldn't necessarily say that my family was a peaceful group. It was very dynamic and energetic. And there were times, I think, as a young person where I saw how much when people were fighting or struggling, how much they were missing each other and not understanding one another. So I think I tuned into quite naturally into what was happening and often felt frustrated at, at simply the lack of understanding that went on between people in my family. So when it came time for me to discover a vo vocation or a profession, I, I had tried a number of different things and I'd worked in the environmental movement and I'd done body work and was trained as a psychotherapist and then wasn't really able to land on what it is I did. And I remember reversing the question, Mikhail, where I started asking, what are people telling me I do instead of what do I want to do? The What I want didn't never took me in the right direction, but what are people telling me I do well? And once I did that, my vocation as a mediator and as a conflict resolution professional just unfolded so quickly and so naturally. So I started to work for the Seattle Dispute Resolution Center. I moved back to my home state of Utah, was hired as the director of dispute resolution for the judiciary and the court system, and then basically went on to, to make my living. And over time, I came to realize that meditation and mediation are the same activity. 
that when we meditate, our body, speech, mind becomes one with our environment. And when we mediate, we look at the the dynamics and the dispute and the differences, and we start to try to uncover this deeper unity. And then we, through that, those shared wants and needs, then we can come up with, you know, solutions that both parties can feel good about. So that's been my life's work. And that's how you and I met. And then I was, as you mentioned, I just happened to meet Ken Wilber and was deeply influenced by his work and found it very helpful. And so that's how you and I came together. And I think you and I, we seem to share that interest, the interest in uh, being able to, as you were saying, to dive deep and to understand what's going on at a deep level, not on the surface with people, but what's actually happening, all that life that's underneath the surface and how do we work with it? Mm. Well, thank you. Great. There are many directions we can take now, but just to stay on on what you say now, we can learn what is going on beneath the surface. What have you learned about that? I, I know we have you've taught me many very interesting things that helped me today. But I'd love to hear you on if you know the patterns or the the tools or the lenses that you use to kind of sense into this water beneath the surface. Human beings really are highly cooperative and really enjoy the experience of being the same. You know, Google did a, they conducted some research on their most highly effective teams. And I think it was not only their most effective, but their happiest teams, you know, because there's how we execute and there's also how we feel about our work. So they were happy and they were effective. And what they found is that there was a high degree of psychological safety in those groups. And Mm -hmm. maybe you work with that idea, Mikhail. Yeah, yeah. Basically, what it, what it means is that uh, if you think about human beings' evolutionary history, that we evolved, we survived, we approached life through being part of a group. And what was most threatening to us was really another human being or another group of human beings. You know, there were natural predators, and obviously, there's a, we're always subject to disease. But the biggest threat in our nervous system comes from a different other. And so lots of times when we're working with groups, I'm looking at how much energy of differentiation, conflict, or otherness is in the room. And then I'm looking for the ways to honor it because difference is where creativity lies. And it's also the way that we grow is our encounter with difference. But if we can't establish that psychological sameness or we can't invite the nervous system of human beings to relax, we actually don't work very well together. So I'm always really tuning into how well is this group functioning as a whole? Can they feel relaxed? Can they let down? In the Google research, they, you know, they found things like people were more willing to take risks they would expose their vulnerabilities or their errors. They would ask for advice. All the things that we try to train as these you know, very productive ways of being in groups really come from the sense that other people care about your well-being. If you're in a group and you feel like other people are competing or they're trying to bring you down or they're criticizing you, it's very, very difficult to employ that great set of communication skills. So fundamentally, I work with the assumption that the more a group can bond and unify, the more it can differ and conflict. And it can't conflict very well if it doesn't have a deep and and, uh, robust bond. 
So you would, you would start by creating this idea of bounding, this, you said, sameness and otherness mm -hmm. as two, two polarities. Mm -hmm. So you, you would yeah. start by building the sameness or being this, this place where we feel we're not in danger by the others. We are mm -hmm. safe together. And that works if I feel not too different from you or in, close enough or the same enough, then I feel safe. Right. Yeah. Let's think of let's think about it as the felt experience of our sameness is what's registering in our body. So this is a, a little bit of an aside, Mikhail, but you and I have worked on this together as well. We are much more sensitive in the body than we are in the mind. So you can ask people, how do you feel about this group? And they'll have some ideas. But then if you ask them to actually sense in their body, they will start to be able to tell even more fundamentally how the group is functioning because we are incredibly sensitive to one another. So one of the things that's happening in our work of human development and consulting and group work is that we're getting much, much better at dealing with embodiment. So when the nervous system relaxes, we become more efficient. We can access flow states. We can move our projects more efficiently. When there's a lot of difference in the nervous system, we have to work with that. So I'm always moving back and forth between the differences and the conflicts and the sameness, deepening the sameness, moving back to the conflict. So for example, I may not start by deepening sameness if I come into a room that I'm working with that, that has high degrees of anxiety, differentiation, and conflict, I'm going to work with that first. And I'm going to start to just name it and at least bring everybody into the experience that, oh yeah, we have this conflict and we all agree. And then all of a sudden the agreement about the conflict is where the sameness is. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Will that make sense yeah, to your listeners? Yeah. 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 Uh, very, very clear. So you would make explicit the conflict, make explicit the differentiation, the differences among us. And then we start to recognize and acknowledge that, yes, we are different on that. We are disagree on that. And then in that space, we are the same. We are, we are, we agree on something. So yeah. We agree on something. Then we can start to relax. Yep, exactly. Mm. So I wouldn't necessarily say, how is it that you're the same? I would say, it looks like there's a conflict. Does everybody agree? And then all of a sudden you've got the sameness there. Yeah. So it's a little bit of going back and forth. You know, I like to think of it a lot of times the way uh, we can think about food, where the sameness is like the bass notes in music. It creates, or in, in food, you know, the aromatics and the broth and uh, the umami, those deeper tones, <laughs> you know, yeah. they provide the bass. And then, and then there's more differentiation. And then the very final things are, you know, cilantro and lemon. It's like this mm. whole spectrum of sameness to difference and the same w in working with people, same mm. in playing jazz, the same in sports, a mm. lot of team play and then individual plays that are amazing. So what I observe in groups is that people really try to hold on the sameness. They don't want to be differentiated. They want to have the conflict. So they really do everything mm -hmm. to avoid the conflict. So mm -hmm. it would turn into, um, we want to involve everybody in the decision making so they feel okay. Yeah, and they preserve right. something, and that becomes so costly in organizations. So we don't yes, know does. anymore who is responsible yes. for what, and then it's very painful. Everybody's in every meeting all the time. Everybody's yeah. suffering, but it's as if we were we were preserving some status quo. Mm -hmm. That that and and because out of there it feels so dangerous. Yes, uh, correct. And mm -hmm. and and so so I really as many mm -hmm. of our audience people in the audience are change you know change makers leaders who are mm -hmm. trying to bring about change. I think first of all, these distinctions which we, we're touching on now is very useful. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, so 
what can be a way to step out of the comfort zone and just uh, help people differentiate enough so we can evolve? In my view, this is really, really essential to all group work. So what I hear you saying is that there is a tendency for groups to affirm sameness because the differentiation is too risky. That really comes from the fact that most people have not had good experiences of working with conflict or working with differences. And that it to, to risk that is to risk a conflict that isn't going to re- be repaired, to do injury to a fellow teammate, to maybe offend your boss. There's all kinds of risks. And so because they don't have experience with being able to have the conflicts and succeed, they won't do that. And so, you know, there's a a famous ethnobiologist who says that human beings are as cooperative as bees, ants, and termites in the sense that we, we don't, we can live in these incredibly complex, very densely populated cities. And a lot of what we're doing is getting along. So part of what you're encountering with a group like that is you're encountering the impulse towards sameness to keep things safe. So we have to learn how to create safety in a different way. And we also have to learn to educate people that we only grow and change and evolve through the encounter with difference. And what I like to say is usually when we're experiencing a difference, it isn't what we're hearing that's causing the problem. It's the sensations that's hearing it are causing in the body. So what we're having trouble coping with is not the differences, it's what those differences create in our nervous system. So my advice always is to educate groups that difference is healthy, to, but we have to regulate our nervous systems. And so we teach you know, very directly ways of regulating our nervous systems. And then we turn the heat up very, very slowly on the conflict, or we turn the heat down if the conflict is too hot, because the creativity and productiveness of a group, really, I keep using the cooking analogy, but it's like that. There has to be the right amount of heat. If there's too much conflict, it's too hot, everybody will cope. If it's too cold, everybody becomes sluggish. So you need the right amount of heat to warm everyone up so that we're in this, we kind of recognize the sameness and then we can bring the difference out and let things start to to bubble. But we can't let it get too hot or we'll do damage, we'll burn it. So that's part of the way I think about it is that 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 kind of habitual pattern of just becoming the same is just the attempt at not doing injury or damage. And it's really deep in our evolution to get along. So the facilitator's job is to educate. It's a good thing. Here's how you work with your nervous system. Let's try a little bit of difference. And if somebody's going to, towards too much, you help them turn it down so they can hear each other. And then pretty soon people can can start to get used to it and realize they actually aren't threatened. The difference isn't threatening. It's mm. our inability to work with it that's threatening. And, and you call it the regulation, regulating your nervous system so you can, mm-hmm. you can adjust. So mm-hmm. how, that's so how we how can we do that? Um is it is it by breathing, by meditating, by becoming more well, self-aware? Well, I think I think it always has to be placed in the context of people understanding that difference is good for us. That's where creativity and our evolution, it, you know, one way to think of it is anything we've ever learned, 
we've learned because we've encountered differences, you know? So if we, if we want to learn how to paint, we've gotten better and better at using color. But when we first started, we didn't know how. And so the same is true in group work. So in order for groups to grow, they have to be willing to encounter things that are unfamiliar. They won't learn and they won't grow. So let's place the regulation of the nervous system in this desire to learn how to work about difference so we can become more creative, more interesting, more effective. Okay, so then once a group accepts that assumption, then basically what we want to do is teach them, teach them the sort of the fundamentals of nervous system regulation and one of the the evolving one of the emergent sets of learning that's going on right now is somatic some of it comes from work on trauma and really learning helping people make the nervous system an object so that when they have reactive responses to life or they freeze or i should say we because a most of us have these responses at one level or another, that we can learn how to become present. And by becoming present with our nervous system, we can start to work with it in a way that it we entrain it in how to relax. So we're entraining relaxation into the nervous system. And so imagining for a moment that, let's say, my boss is displeased with a project that I've done and his or her experiences, they're simply giving me feedback. And my experience is, oh, I'm wrong. I didn't do this well. I feel threatened. And now I'm also not liking my boss. Let's say all those things are happening in my nervous system or in my mind and in my nervous system. Fundamentally, I'm having the experience of threat. So when I teach the calibration of the nervous system, the first thing I teach is that we have to recognize it. Most of us are good at recognizing it, but we're not good at at staying with the recognition because when we're triggered and anybody who's done any work on this understands that the amygdala, which are these glands behind the eyes, signal the brain to distribute basically fight or flight hormones into the nervous system. So when we feel threatened, we get adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine, and these stress hormones drip into our bloodstream. And when those stress hormones drip into our bloodstream, everything in us is looking around for how to, how to seek safety. So even if we're sitting in a conversation across from our boss, if we're feeling threatened, we have begun to cope and we can't learn and cope at the same moment. Hmm. So our, our limbs start to tremble, our heart rate increases, we feel heat in our neck hmm. and our face, we clench our fist or our jaw, we hunch up our shoulders, we protect our heart and the vulnerability of the front of our body. And it's very important to understand that this instinctive function takes over and our cognitive mind, which is the our thinking, reasoning mind, which is very late in our evolution, literally it becomes inaccessible. When the instinctive functions are looking for protection, we can't think and we can't even remember. And one of the things I like to ask people to do is to just contemplate for a moment when you're in a dispute with your family or your partner, your wife, husband, good friend, there's a sensation when that's happening where you can't remember what you liked about them. Can you think of that? Because memory is impeded. We can't, it's very, it's a very complex task mm. to be aroused and remember something positive. That's complex. Totally. Totally. Most of the time, it's just, yeah. I'm just going to take care of myself right now. 
So recognizing that that's happening is the first step. And the cue that I like to be give, given, there are usually four. My invitation to people is to use whichever cue works or use mm. a combination of them. People go to the breath a lot and the breath is really important, but there are three others that I want to introduce people to. So the first is, and this works well for me, the first thing I do when I feel those sensations is say to myself, it's okay. I give myself a mental cue that it's okay because my body's telling me it's not. Mm. And it's it's basically compelling me to do something other than listen and make contact with another person. So I have to tell myself first, it's okay. Other people like to say, it's okay to feel discomfort mm. or I'm confident I can get through this, whatever cue works mm. for you. And so that's the beginning. And then secondly, for me, because those stress hormones create so much movement and agitation, what I like to do is feel next the gravity of my body. So the weightedness of my seat in the chair, my feet on the ground, my shoulders dropping, the sort of weight of the long bones in my body. Just I like to become aware of density because of the, the agitation that adrenaline automatically generates. And that's helpful to me. Again, I, people use the word grounded. They try to ground. I just, I just become aware of gravity and density is how I like to think of it. So it's okay. I'm right here. This is my body. Then the breath. So someone's telling me something I don't want to hear. And I'm partly listening and partly hearing it, but I'm mostly just breathing. I know that regulating is better for me than answering. So I just decide to listen lightly and to work with my breath. Always lengthening the exhale longer. Ah, this feels so hard. Oh, breath. Oh, I feel so impatient. I don't like it. Breath. Okay. So then maybe I might use a verbal cue. I might say something like, I'm working with feeling somewhat triggered or some somewhat agitated. So I'm just going to do my best to listen. And then I'm going to reflect what I hear you say. And then the last step is to, for me, is that I like to feel space. So space outside, the space below me, to the left and the right, the space above me, behind and then feel that space inside my body. Because one of my experiences is when I am feeling those stress hormones, I get very claustrophobic. I think there's kind of a big contraction in the body in order to support movement, running, leaving, jumping away. So I have to feel space, otherwise I'm contracted. So those are the four cues that I use. It's okay feel my body, particularly the density, start to use the breath, use the breath to calibrate listening, and then feel space. And I may not always do it in that order, mm. but I try to include all four of those. Thank you. Wow. Makes me, of course, think of uh, 
heart math and uh, they, they work, they teach on coherence and how to train the muscle of, you know, staying in a space of coherence, even comforted mm-hmm. with stress, in stressful environment. And, and mm-hmm. we should do a podcast on that once. Definitely. Yeah. And Alan Watkins, yeah. who was originally with HeartMath and helped them develop their methodology, he's written a book on coherence. And he's one of the people that I've talked to about this a lot. So mm. it, it has a lot to do with creating coherence in the body mind. That would be great to interview him. Yeah. Yeah, it would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, his company is called Complete Coherence. So, um, and I also think that just the state of being triggered doesn't have to be a big conflict. Doesn't we can feel it can be very subtle. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the 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 impression to be threatened. So like I'm in a conversation and now there is something if, that I don't like. Or I don't want to hear. I I can be triggered and I can actually start to contract and maybe the way I will jump into the conversation will be not from a space of opening but from a space of you know a contraction. And I will maybe, you know, just cut uh, the person in front of me or impose my viewpoint or something. Like that. And we see that all the time. This is actually the standard in, of conversations in most Constantly. of the meetings. Of course. Constantly. And <laughs> this is how we, how we do. I mean, just think of the political landscape. It's a joke. So it's a, so, it's a, it's a uh, complete, it's yeah. a complete if, we had, if we had to live at home, in the atmosphere that we have to endure in the civic life, if we had to live at that at home, we'd move out. Yeah. You know, that we're subjected to the most dysfunctional ridiculousness because conflict captures our attention because it's dangerous. So we, of course, pay attention to it. And then the media loves that we pay attention to it. And so the more conflict, the better. So but, why is it interesting to be an observer? Why is it fun? Why do people watch that? And why do people enjoy that or not even see the, how can we, people, out, the outsiders observing can just be satisfied with that? That's, I'm just curious with that question. I think that the nervous system, uh, it's a, it's a, an attractor. So wherever there's conflict, we tend to, to our attention goes to it. It's like being in a sports bar, you know, you're going to have a drink in a sports bar. And if there are sports on the screens, your eye just naturally goes to it because the human eye sees movement, the human body sees and looks for conflict. And so that's why we're drawn to it. Why we stay in it is that we don't realize the cost that it's having on our nervous system. And we don't realize mm. the destructiveness that it's causing to our relationships and to our, you know, to our, the public square. We're not, mm. we, we're, we're rolling with it thinking this is all there is. It's just a completely regressive and to some degree primitive way to respond to life. Mm. Well, there is, there is this idea of um, in democracy, we like to debate things. Mm-hmm. So if we debate things that we'll have an idea, we'll take a stand from this idea, try to explain it and fold it, mm-hmm. argue for it. And, and if we debate together, you do the opposite. So in a way, we are holding two polarities. What we do mm-hmm. most of the time, we don't really listen to each other. So yeah. I, will, I will not integrate your polarity. I would just, I would just try to reject it all the time. So that's maybe what the, the fault is. There's a developmental implication in what you're saying, Mikhail, and that is that it takes more human capacity to hold multiple truths. All of us, when we're under stress, resort to one way of seeing the world. Because again, we have to be efficient and we have to assess really quickly what the safest and best way to respond is. So if I hold my perspective and yours, that's not going to allow me to respond very quickly. So to hold two different truths in our body, I like to use the analogy, is like doing a yoga asana. It's like it's stressful and I have to put some attention into it and I have to concentrate because it doesn't come necessarily naturally to do that. 
earlier levels of development, one truth is all we're capable of. It's only as we grow and expand that we start to be able to first listen to multiple truths, then to actually inhabit and understand them, then to uh, create a hierarchy of truths, and then to take a perspective on the truths. Those are all developmental mm. achievements, every one of them. Mm. So to get groups, to, to support groups in just the next level of their ability to have multiple perspectives in the room and without the nervous system going into to a defensive mode is, mm-hmm. a, is a real, it's a real thing to coach mm-hmm. for sure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and when you say truth, there is, there is the big it true, the D truth. Uh, and then there is the true, my truth. And then you, you even mentioned the hierarchy of truth. So that's, that's interesting because for my, my education of being French in the philosophy, I remember we, we, you, you, well, you, you speak about your perspective or your truth, but not the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the idea of a hierarchy. So, so just, can you just elaborate a little bit on that? The idea of different multiple truth and hierarchy of truth. One of the things that I learned from Ken Wilber was that how we use language is deeply, has deep impacts on our experience. And all of us use the first, the second, and the third person. And my truths are the ones that are the closest to me. They're born out in my experience. I'm invested in them. I'm probably not willing to change them very much. And the only thing I need to affirm those truths is my own consent. I just have to agree with myself. And lots of times we have conflicts, as you know, where internally we're not agreeing with ourselves. Mm. But when I'm under stress, I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. The third person truth kind of emerged with the Enlightenment in Europe. It really didn't exist so much in human culture before the Enlightenment. And that was, you know, the ability to study the stars like Galileo and others coming along and saying there is a, an objective perspective that we can take that our pers- our, our I truth and the truth of the group or the collective, which we could call a, a we truth. And then there's the it truth. And the it truth is really, really has become very powerful in the last 400 years because of science, because of our instruments, because of our ability to measure, because of our videotapes, you know, the, the sense of what is it. We have methods in order to establish what those empiric truths are. But the all-important we truth tends to trump both the I truth and the it truth. Mm. So, you know, we're, we're struggling with the LBGTQ things and the mainstream is coming down hard because it doesn't want those truths to be in culture, mm. right? Mm. Uh, oh, climate change is really too, well, maybe not. We don't really want to have to change the way we're dealing with fossil fuels. You know, so the, so the it and the I get subjected to the we. And in in group work, it's really important to make a distinction between those three truths because a lot of the work that we do, um, we need to know what people want, what they think. And we also need to know what the empiric data is. We want to, we want metrics, we want targets, we want measures. And but we need groups to agree. And they're going to agree more wholeheartedly when you when they each have an opportunity to express their own personal preferences and their own personal way of seeing it. And when they have the data that they need to make informed decisions, then they can come into more powerful we's. And so the we tends to trump the other two domains. 
a hierarchy of truths. For example, we, we you and I were talking about this earlier. When people conflict and they're protesting, and let's say there's violent in the streets, those true there's truths to those perspectives, but there's also a cost. So it might be that there's truth to the perspectives of how to get along and what processes we need in order to quell kind of the civic unrest. And those truths should take precedence over the more destructive truths. Now, not everybody will agree with that. Some people say, burn it down. But that would be the question to a group, is which of these truths have more value to us? More complexity, more truth. Less complexity, probably less truth. I don't mm. know. Actually, I just said that, and I don't, I don't know that that's true. Sometimes simpler is more true. Ultimately, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but how do, how, do, how do groups come to decisions? How do they agree? And what do they understand to be true? from the first person, the second, and the third person perspective. Mm. Yeah, so starting with the it, with the data, with the empiric you know, information that we, we have, and then giving space for people to express mm -hmm. a perspective, their worldview, they need, their fears, whatever it is, uh, their preferences, and and then from there we can... So that um, just makes me think of this very simple decision-making process called decision-making by consent, mm -hmm. when you, you know come with a proposition and then uh, with it, and then people mm -hmm. express how they feel about it, and then you can start to decide. There you go. Um, so you yeah, you enter, yeah. you basically enter mm. into a kind of a negotiation yeah, yeah. that leads leads to agreement. Yeah. And agreement is the truth of second person. It's the truth of us, mm. right? The truth of you. It's our decision. We, be, we take a decision. It's our decision. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is which is such a big thing. That we can manage to, as as humans together, manage to take a decision that has an impact on everyone, and they, you know, take on this decision and act on it, and yes. stay true to it. Uh, that's that's very very powerful. It's really that's, powerful. That's the beginning yeah. of a civilization, I guess. Even this capacity, isn't it? Well, sometimes yeah. you know the the decision is imposed on people by force, mm -hmm. but still, mm -hmm. somehow this is, I guess, the way, it, you know, the, the basis of any organization. I think in some ways we kind of take the power of our agreements for granted. You know, we, we focus on the ways we don't agree and we complain in the background, but to really look at what a powerful thing it is when we arrive at a similar conclusion and we agree that we want to take a similar action, you know, we should, we should really educate people into to how important it is and what it does for, mm. for our, 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 again, you know, the, the embodied sense when we when we reach agreement is very satisfying in the human body. You know, we need to pay attention to that. I just I think I'm realizing as we speak that we often criticize organizations for being slow in decision making or mm -hmm. that it's difficult because you know, but I I just see that it takes time to integrate perspectives. And the more complexity, mm -hmm. the more time we need. And we tend to kind of dismiss this need. Of time of digestion, just laying down the facts and then enabling you know people to express what they need. All that takes time. Well, the other the other way to to do it is to empower someone to take that kind of decision, and they just do yes. it, and we just live with that. Yeah, and, uh, that can happen. Groups do like a kind of you could say a, a smorgasbord of efficiency versus depth. And some, so sometimes if you, if you place a decision before a group that's simple and they can arrive at a conclusion easily and it's very efficient, they'll do it quickly if you encourage them to. Or you can say, 
you know, in the service of efficiency, are we willing to hand this off? Let's hand this off to so-and-so. Can you live with that decision? Because there is something refreshing about a decision that's fast. Mm. But but when you need support and you need a good strategy in order to succeed, you really want to take time with those decisions. So in a way, taking more time should correlate to the importance of the decision in my mind, unless it's just imperative that it happens mm-hmm. fast for whatever reason. You know, if you're in an emergency situation, then of course, action is the most important thing. And so those decisions have to be made quickly. I, I work with the you know, executive teams, leadership teams, so, you know, the top team of a company, 20,000 people maybe. And I just witness the quantity of decisions they have to take when the impact all the time. Are all like all the time. You take a CEO, mm-hmm. have to take decisions all the time, all the time, all the time, with very little time to think and choose to. And even with extremely aware, self-aware, grounded, educated, smart people, it's still very challenging because you don't have the, you can't get the full picture. So what, what would be your advice to like this kind of executive team that has all these decisions on the table all the time? Should they delegate them? Should they stop, you know, even take decisions that delegate them down into the organization? Or should they? The first mm. thing is what we've already been talking about in mm. the same way that I bring yeah. the, the sensations the of sameness and difference to a group. Yeah. And I ask them to start paying attention to it. And I ask them to pay attention to the nervous system to really get groups to begin to really look at how many, you know, the whole decision-making experience of their group, how many, how frequently their decisions, the nature of the decisions, who tends to make them quickly, who tends to make them more slowly, like just being curious and interesting about in decision-making, I think helps a lot. And then of course, there's always learning from errors and there's always kind of, you know, as decision, as decision-makers, it's, it's, it's embodied, it's instinctive. It's based on experience and past memory. It's uh, It also has to do with lots of analysis. So it's a very comprehensive experience to, to make a decision, particularly in a group of people and the way a group makes decisions together. And so just getting very inspired about them and, and letting, them, letting them really start to sift, to let the decisions drop away that you get a sensation they, they don't need to be made. Actually, maybe there's no decision here. Maybe we let this go for a week and see if it pops up again. Like there also has to be some kind of trimming down of decisions a Mm. little bit because we get into a habit of everything has to be analyzed and decided Mm. and it doesn't. You just let certain things ripen. That's all Mm. there is to it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So the whole thing becomes a very deep and powerful Mm. inquiry. Mm. And, you know, we have to be careful, particularly in the corporate space. There's always this quality of intensity and urgency and burden. And, and, you know, you have to help groups see like, let, let's for the next 10, the next 15 minutes, we're going to relax and we're going to actually let urgency go out the window. We're going to explore the other side of that polarity nice. and we're going to see what does it feel like to just relax and take what we're doing right now really, really slowly. And let's let a decision come from that pace and see if we like it. So all kinds of nice. exploration and fun. Can I ask one thing, maybe what will be your, that's what I ask of the audience or just to my guests, sorry, uh, is to get my mic, I remove my headset and I let you speak yourself directly to the audience, people who are listening to you in time and distance. What would you want to tell them? Those people who are, I think the people in this call, in this listening are trying to make a change. Yes. Thank you, everyone. I would like to to say to you, first of all, thank you so much for 
bringing your curiosity and your presence to this call and listening to this conversation. And I want to also affirm that any goodwill that you bring towards your group is inherently valuable and your intention to assist and help others to grow is absolutely priceless. And no matter what else is happening in the world, you need to know that every single day that you're doing that, it is absolutely worthwhile. Okay. Thank you so much, Diane, for being with us today. Well, it was amazing. Exactly. I have much more, so many more questions for you. So let's rebook another date in the coming weeks or months. And then, yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. I really hope this inspired you. And stay tuned for our next episode. Bye. Bye.